0: Traveling for Thanksgiving this week. Who's hosting for Thanksgiving this week? Who's just uh, gonna sit at home and watch a football game? <laughs> <laughs> Depending who's playing, that uh, may be easier. It may not be. I don't know. Hey, we're glad that you're uh, you're here with us today. Uh, Glad you can make it in if you're here in person, if you're joining us online. We're, we're honored that you uh, are here with us as we get ready to wrap up uh, the, the series today. Next week, we're starting a new one. Uh, it's a Christmas-themed series called A Low-Key Christmas. And uh, uh, we're going to start off just kind of talking about what Christmas really the focus is all about, and specifically what it shouldn't be all about. So don't miss that. We're going to kick that off next Sunday. Uh, but today we are wrapping up this series. And, and to start uh, this morning, before we even dive into the final question that we're going to look at, I want to just ask you a different question. Why do you serve? I know so many of you serve in a variety of capacities. And the question is, why do you serve? Maybe it's uh, the way you serve your community. You serve in the, the PTO at school, or you help coach the youth sports team. Maybe you, you coach your kids' uh, soccer teams and serve the, the other kids on the team by being there with your time. Uh, or, or maybe you serve and help with an HOA board and, and help get activities for families to do. Maybe you served your country. Last week, Brad uh, recognized the veterans on, on Veterans Day weekend. Uh, why did you serve? Was it this sense of duty? Was it, uh, you know, wanting to protect freedom? Was it maybe wanting to uh, defend the little guy? You know, again, why, why do you serve? Maybe you serve the church. W- why do you serve the church? Is it to spread the gospel? Is it to uh, grow the kingdom? Is it to reach the lost? Why do you serve? Maybe another way of asking is, is whatever you do and, and however you serve, what's your motivation for serving? Again, today we're going to wrap up this series called Questions That Jesus Asked by looking at one of the final questions he asked. In fact, if you read through the gospel uh, narratives, there's only one other time after this that he asks a question, and it's in the same conversation. Just a a few minutes later, he asks another question twice that, that is kind of emphasizing a conversation that he's having, but this is one of the final questions that he asks in in the the gospel accounts. It takes place kind of a few days before, or sorry, a few days after the resurrection. And we've kind of shifted from the Jerusalem area where the crucifixion happened, where he was buried, where he resurrected. All this is taking place back up in Galilee now. The, The disciples have returned home, and after everything that's happened, they're really not sure what's going on, so they go back to what they know. They go back to fishing. And while they're fishing... It says they're in their boat about 100 yards off the shore, and Jesus shows up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They don't recognize him at first. He had a little bit of a different appearance at at this time. But uh, he asks them a question. Have you caught anything? That's not the question we're talking about today, by the way, (laughs) uh, because that would be a very appropriate question if any of you have ever gone fishing with me. It's, have you caught anything? And the answer is a resounding no. But he asked them, have you caught anything? And they say, no, we haven't. And he gives them this wonderful fishing advice. Hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, because that five feet is going to make all the difference in the world, right? And sure enough, it does. They, they fill their nets with fish, and they bring them back to the shore, and, and there was almost too many to count. But when they get back to the shore, he's prepared a breakfast for them. And it's really interesting the way it's worded in John chapter 21. Starting in verse 9, it says, When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. A lot of symbolism here when you look at this. First off, the fish and the bread, that calls back to when Jesus fed the multitudes, when he fed the 5,000 with fish and bread. And he showed them in that miracle that he was more than they could ever hope for, more than they could ever want. He was more than enough. And so that kind of calls back here to these disciples who are still trying to figure out exactly what's going on now. But there's another detail here in the setting that's going to set up the question he's about to ask. Because notice where they're at. It says, there's a charcoal fire. You see that one other time in the entire Bible. In fact, the word that's in here for charcoal only shows up in the New Testament one other time. It was just a few days earlier. Just a few days earlier, maybe a week or so earlier, that we see another charcoal fire at play. John chapter 18, Jesus is in the house of Caiaphas. He's being questioned. He's been arrested. And... Outside the house in the courtyard, it says this, the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. You might know what happens next. If you don't, Peter is asked, hey, weren't you with this Jesus guy that's in here that you know, committed these crimes that we're about to execute? And Peter says, no, I don't even know who that guy is. And then he's asked again, and he denies again. Then he's asked a third time, and he denies a third time. No, I'm not with him. In fact, I don't even know him. Never heard of the guy. Must have done something bad. Peter three times is asked and three times denies, knowing who Jesus is at this charcoal fire. And now here's Jesus just a few days later, resurrected, building a charcoal fire. Symbolism is always huge with Jesus. Everything he does has a purpose. The details always mean something. I don't know exactly how much time has passed here, I'm guessing less than a week. My guess is that Jesus hasn't had many interactions with the disciples, especially with Peter, just simply based on the nature of what He's about to ask him and what he's about to talk about. John chapter 21, starting in verse 15, Jesus pulls Peter to the side, and I've just visualized that they kind of walk just a little ways away from the group, not completely away, but just far enough away where he can be a little bit private. And it says in verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Notice the repetition here. This isn't Jesus just asking something because he forgot that he asked it. I do that sometimes. I'm only 41. I will ask you a question multiple times because I've completely forgotten that I've asked you once before. I'm really not looking forward to the next couple of decades. From what I've been told, that only gets worse. No, that's not what he's doing here. Three times he asks him a very simple question. Three times Peter gives a very emphatic answer. And three times Jesus follows that up with a command. There's a lot going on here. Jesus, I think, is extending to Peter an invitation, an opportunity to to, to be brought back in, not just as a follower, but as somebody who acknowledges publicly who he is. Somebody who's willing to acknowledge publicly that that he does love Jesus, that he does want to be with Jesus. And again, I think it ties directly back to the fact that three times Peter was given the chance to publicly profess Jesus and wouldn't do it. After boasting and bragging that he loved Jesus more than anybody else and that he would never, ever betray him like the other disciples might, he turned right around and did it just a few hours later. Three times. And now here's Jesus again. Three times. And you need to understand something about this culture. Jesus isn't just repeating this for our sake. He's not even just repeating it for the sake of repeating it. In this culture, when you repeated a question to, some, to somebody, or when you stated something and then stated it again, that showed it had valuable importance if you repeated it that second time. I do this with my kids a lot. I'll say something to them tell them what I want them to do, or tell them what I want them to understand, and their response back to me is is really almost blank. So I'll say it again, like, no, you didn't hear me the first time clearly, so I'm going to say it again. And we do this. We'll repeat something a second time. There's value there. But in this culture, if you repeated it a third time, that showed it was of the utmost importance. And now here's what we've got. Jesus has repeated this once, now he's repeated it twice twice, Three times he's asked him the same question and gotten the same answer to the point where Peter actually is feeling his heartbreak. Peter is feeling hurt that Jesus isn't believing what he's saying here. But saying something that third time showed exactly how important it was. I think that's why we read in Revelation 4 when we get this vision of, of the throne room of God and the, the four living creatures come around her. They repeat this thing three times. Holy, holy, holy is the lord god almighty it's not enough to just call him holy but they say it and then the second time it shows it's important the third time it shows just how significant it really is three times peter denied him three times jesus asked him do you love me this is pointed it is intentional he's not just trying to get peter to admit something i mean after all peter said you know all things you know my heart you know what's in my heart so you already know that I love you. He needs him to say it. I think it's a simple reason why. Jesus demands our devotion, he demands our love. He demands everything that we have. But it's not just about asking Peter about love, he's also renewing his commission to Peter. He's charging Peter with a renewed commitment to serving his church. He's reinstating him as a disciple, I think, after Peter had had fallen and Peter had, had made a major mistake. He's giving him the opportunity to reclaim what he had given him several months, if not a year or two earlier. In Caesarea Philippi, there's this cliff that Jesus visited with with his disciples, and he takes a couple of them off to the side, and he asks them a question, hey, who do people say that I am? And, And they say, well, you know, you are Elijah, or you're Moses, or you're one of the prophets, and he goes, no, who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, it says, that Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And look what he says next. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He's commissioning Peter right then and there. On this rock I will build my church, the name Peter. It's from the Greek petros. That's the Greek word for stone or rock. He's making a point. And now he's coming back here after the resurrection, after Peter has betrayed him and denied him and run away. He's giving him the opportunity to reclaim that commission by saying, if you love me, go feed my sheep. It's a restoration based in love of both a relationship but also a purpose and a calling for what Peter is supposed to do. I think the point Jesus is ultimately making here is that true love for him is the motivation for serving him. I asked you earlier, why do you serve? If you serve the church, and I know hundreds of you do, we have an amazing army of volunteers at this church. Ultimately, it's out of love for for, for God, out of love for what Jesus did for you. It's appreciating that redeeming grace that he has shown you and, and that amazing love that he has for you. And that love will lead and spill out over over the course of time into you loving others the way he loves you and serving others the way that he serves you. It naturally spills out that way. I think it's a reflection back on the great commandment to love God and to love people, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it has to come from that, that place of love. Otherwise, it's empty. Otherwise, it's just, it's, it's just doing something that you're supposed to do without much heart behind it. Serving is great, but it must be rooted in love. Otherwise, it becomes mindless and senseless duty that can lead to burnout. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, "...if I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels but didn't love others..." I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but if I didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing." What's Paul saying there? You could have every gift in the world and serve every way possible in the world, but if it's not from a place of love, it doesn't matter. That's what he's saying there. And sometimes we we do this, we get wrapped up in this. That can lead to burnout, that can lead to to brokenness, that can lead to hurt feelings at times because we're serving out of this place of, of not love. We're serving out of a heartless spot. We look at this conversation that Jesus has here. Three times he asks, do you love me? Three times Peter says yes. Three times he tells him what to do. And and if we look at that, we get two main thoughts out of this conversation that, that Jesus has with Peter. This restorative conversation that he's having here. The first is this. It may be obvious, but love is at the foundation of your relationship with Jesus. It has to be. And again, you may read that and go, well, yeah, duh. Love's the foundation of every relationship I have. It is. It should be. But it's also worth being reminded of that from time to time and being reminded of where that love comes from and what it means for us. For example, we read in Matthew chapter 22, the great commandment, when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We're commanded to love. But where does that love come from? Well, John tells us in 1 John 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. In other words, we aren't capable of love without the love of God first. God loved us before we existed. It says that before he knitted us together in our mother's womb, he knew us. He loved us. Parents, you understand this. You love your child before you even conceive that child. You've already got a love for that child that only grows as as the, the child grows in the womb. And then as the child is born, there's immediately this love that is without condition for that child. And yet that child doesn't know how to love you back yet. You show that child love over the course of time. You show him or her what love looks like. You show him or her what love means. And that's similar here. We love because he first loved us. And the the Bible shows time and time again how much he loved us. Like in Romans 5 where it says he showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I've said this before. That's a verse that I have a hard time wrapping my head around sometimes. Because while we were still lost and broken, while we were failing him, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. That's how much he loved us. And our love for him is rooted in that fact. It comes out of what his love for us means. It's a love that's greater than any of our mistakes or any of our shortcomings. It's a love that that can take away the sin of the world. It's a love that is redeeming and restoring. And I think that's part of why Jesus asked Peter this question so many times here. Because you notice he's asking. He's not lecturing. He's not setting him down and telling him why he should love him so much. He's not setting him down and reading him the riot act for everything he had done wrong. No, he is asking a question. Therefore, he is inviting and forcing reflection in Peter's mind. He is taking Peter to a place that invites involvement in a conversation. He's not dominating it. He's not steering the train of thought. No, he is asking a question so that Peter can answer honestly, and we see that. And I think we would be wise to learn this lesson from Jesus. Too often, we come across somebody who has fallen. We come across somebody who has messed up, especially a person in ministry or a person in the church, and we're quick to want to tell them the what for. And too often enough, we don't just ask a question and get out of the way. We'd be wise to listen to what James says. In James chapter 1, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note. Everyone should be what? Quick to listen and slow to speak. Way too often, we're the other way around. Especially in the church, we can be very quick to speak, and sometimes we're even quicker to speak in ways that really aren't Christ-like, really aren't helpful. There are ways that are hurtful, ways that are harmful, especially, again, with somebody who has failed, somebody who has messed up, somebody who is broken. I heard a quote this week when I was doing some research that just rattled me. It said that in many ways, the church... Is the only army that shoots its wounded rather than attending to them and healing them. I was like, man, that's right. Too many times we'd rather just disassociate, just put this person out of our midst. And yet we're called to do what? To be there for them. We're called to shepherd these people. Often we preach mercy and grace and kindness, but we're not very quick to offer those three things. And if we do, it's to a very select few. And even when we do that, we're often not very good at it. Because often what we want to do, we want to whip out the Bible and show them where they're wrong and, and weaponize the gospel. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you actually prayed for wisdom before you had a conversation with somebody? Especially somebody that's broken. Somebody that's hurting. Somebody that's messed up. When's the last time you prayed said, God, just guide my words. Help them to be restorative. Help them to be healing. Help me to shut my mouth when I just need to shut my mouth and just listen. That's exactly, I think, what Jesus is showing here by asking Peter a simple question. Yes, he's repeating it, but he's wanting Peter to understand something here. He's taking him back to where it all began. There's restoration taking place here. Again, not just a declaration of love, but a a redemption of a person and what that person stood for here. You notice he calls him Simon. He doesn't call him Peter here. He calls him Simon. You know when else he called him Simon? When he first saw him and called him into ministry. He said, Simon, son of Jonah, come follow me. And then he gave him a new name. And then he calls him Peter. And yet here he's calling him Simon. Why? I think because he's calling him all over again. He's letting Peter hit the reset button and he's, he's showing him something in all of this too. That love, yes, is, is, is key. But sometimes love might look different ways depending on where you're standing. There's a fun little word study here in this passage. There's actually two different Greek words that, that show up in this passage that are translated as love. There's several different Greek words for love, but there's two in this passage. The first is what Jesus uses the first two times he asks the question. It's the Greek word agapao. And that's where we get the word agape. Agape is a divine love. It's the love God has for us, a love that is without condition, a love that can't be earned or deserved that we get anyway. And the first two times Jesus says, do you love me, it's agapal. Peter replies with something different. Peter replies with the word phileo. Phileo is a deep brotherly type of love. That's where we get the name Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is how Peter replies the first two times. So the third time, Jesus asks him, okay, do you phileo me? And Peter, again, cut to the heart and goes, I've been trying to tell you this. Yes, I do. Now, I say these words, and I'll kind of come back then and say, don't read too much into that either. Because it really doesn't mean, there's no contextual reason why we have two different Greek words here. Because John uses these words interchangeably throughout his gospel. And even in the love that God has for us, the love God has for the Son, the love that we're supposed to have for others, both of these words can be used interchangeably throughout the Gospels. But I think when we see this, I think maybe the thing we can get out of this is that this whole idea of agapao, this divine love, God's love for us, is something that we need in order to be able to have phileo for one another. We have to have God's love for us before we can have love for one another. And love back towards him. Jesus is talking about this love. And he's bringing it to the focus by talking about Peter's love for him. And I think the reason here is he knew. He knew that that Peter was grieved. Because Peter had made a pretty big mistake here. Peter had made a big mistake in denying Jesus. And then Jesus is killed on the cross. And I think Peter knows, okay, you know what, I may have to live with this. That's the last thing I've said to him is he's heard me deny him three times. And I have a feeling with Peter, as much as he was a proud, boastful person, a real gung-ho type of person, he's probably wearing this with some shame. And I think Jesus understands that. And I think that's what he's trying to do here is force Peter to say out loud how much he loves him. Because he needs to work through that, that sin. He needs to work through that shame And folks, let me just challenge you with something else here too. The love that God has for you, that should lead to that feeling of grieving in your heart when you sin against him. Because I don't think that you can truly love God if you can approach sin casually and you can just shrug it off like it's no big deal. No, you need to reaffirm your love for, for him. The Bible says that if you confess your sin to him, he is faithful and just and he will forgive you with a love that goes bigger than any sin you've committed but he wants the reaffirmation. Restoration needs reaffirmation when it comes to his love. His love for us and your love for him is the root of that relationship with him. But it leads to something else too. Because Here's the second thought, if you do love Jesus, then we're called to take care of his sheep. We're called to lead his sheep. Because again, he asks the question three times, Peter answers it three times, And then Jesus replies with a command three times. He says, tend my lambs, then feed my sheep, and then he says, feed my lambs. You see two different words here, tend and feed. The first word, feed, it just simply means to nourish. It means to nourish somebody just like you would with your children when you feed them dinner at night or feed them breakfast in the morning. It's to give somebody a good proper diet. As a church, often when we talk about feeding somebody, it's usually through teaching. It's through sharing the word. Paul tells uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. That's what we do here. Whether that's on this stage or upstairs, whether that's what uh, Stefan does with the students, whether that's what the kids' teachers do, whether that's what you do maybe in a small group that you lead, we teach the word, we preach it. That's feeding. You all come here on Sunday mornings. We, we, we teach, we, we sing songs, we fellowship together. It kind of fills your cup back up so you can head out into the week. And that's one big aspect of ministry is feeding. But that's not the only aspect, and I don't know that it's the most important aspect, because he also says, to tend my sheep. Tend means to shepherd. That's really a better translation of the word tend. To shepherd, that means you do a whole lot of other things. You lead, you guide, you protect you take care of the, the sick. You, you, you help the wounded. You, you go find those who have wandered off. You look for the lost. Shepherding is dirty, nasty business sometimes. It's hard work most of the time. Getting up and preaching every week, that's easy. Helping take care of the flock, that sometimes takes a lot more effort and takes a lot more people. But Peter understood what Jesus was telling him here because years later he wrote, a letter to his, his people that were following him. And he tells them to be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care. Watch over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Don't pursue dishonest gain, but be eager to serve. Don't lord over it those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Here's why it's important. You go back to those three commands Jesus gave, tend and feed, there's a key phrase and key word that's in all three of those. Cuz he says feed my lambs, tend my sheep. We got to remember whose sheep these are. Whose sheep you are, whose sheep I am, whose sheep those lost out there are. It's his. We're talking about Jesus's flock here, Jesus's people here. One thing I've admired about this church ever since I first heard of my interview process a few years ago and And then after getting here, having it reaffirmed to me was just the mindset that Brad has always had. You know, Brad started this church and he built this church and and put it in a good place to hand it off to me, you know, over the last couple of years. But this has never been Brad's church. He's very clear about that. It's never been about him. I don't ever want it to be my church. I don't ever want it to be about me because it's not. It's, It's Jesus's church. And it always will be His church. He's always going to be the ultimate shepherd and leader of our church. It's our job to follow him. And sometimes what that means is I have to check myself, even though I'm in a position to to call shots and make decisions. There's a lot of times where I'm, I'm leading a staff meeting or an elders meeting and I'll just say a simple prayer, God, regardless of what I think I want or anybody else at this table wants, we want to do what you want. We want to go where you want us to go. Let the spirit lead me and let the Spirit change what I'm thinking if, if it's not the right direction here. Because see, the church is not ours. It's full of Jesus' people, many of whom are messy and broken, many of whom are hurting. And when we think of it in those terms, that gives us all the more reason to show the same mercy and grace to them that we were shown to us. That's where that love comes from. See, our church as a mission has two directions that it's supposed to go. Our mission is both inwardly and outwardly focused, and it has to always be both of those. It, it's not an either-or. Some churches want to be an either-or. It can't be. We have to be inward and outward at the same time, and thankfully here we're able to do that because there's many times in, in Scripture we read about taking care of the people within your flock that you've been entrusted to, that you have been uh, been given to steward, but yet there's many other parts of Scripture and, and commissioning statements that were given to go out and find the lost as well, too. That's where I, I love how our church is, is structured. Our ministry team model allows us to do both of these. We have so many teams that can be inwardly focused and, and put all of their, their time and care into the people of this church. Our service team, for example, our, our building and grounds team, our follow-up teams, our helping hands, our pastoral care teams, those all get to focus inwardly on our people and make sure that you all are being taken care of. And then we've got some that are almost exclusively outwardly focused, like our outreach team and our missions team, that their goal is to spread the word of Jesus, spread the name of Jesus locally and globally at the same time. And then we have some teams that get to do both. Our men's and our women's ministry, our our youth and kids' ministries get to do this as well too. They get to kind of go in both directions with this. And, and it's, it's so neat to see it all work together. And we've got so many other teams that I didn't, I didn't mention just in rattling these off. Teams that are led by mostly volunteers who love Jesus so much that they want to serve him in his church by helping other people get to experience him on a deeper level. And I can tell you that, yes, we strive for excellence, we want to do these well. We want to show our community around us that we care enough about it to put a good effort in and to do things well. We strive for excellence on the stage uh, in in music and in in message in our small groups that they're efficient and they run well and that people are filled. But we also have to remember that excellence is great but that's not what matters the most. What matters most for Crossroads is that we humbly and honestly love others and love God the way he loved us as we're doing ministry. Our goal isn't ultimately excellence. It's humility and it's obedience and fulfilling a mission that we were given. A mission that was given to us out of love because of love. And it's taking care of a flock that doesn't belong to us that we have been entrusted with. This goes beyond, again, just our our pastoral staff. We have seven of us on staff. We've got a great eldership. We've got great ministry team leaders, all of whom are, are just incredible servants. But it's more than just that group of people. It's all of you. If you call yourself a follower, you call yourself a Christian, you've already been given a commission, whether that's by us at this church or some other church. You were given that by God. You were given that by Jesus. And it's our job as a church to help you be able to do that. This, this ministry team model that we have here was founded based out of Ephesians chapter 4. When Paul says that Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, another word for pastors is shepherds, And teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and all in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what's our purpose? Our purpose is to equip and empower you all to do ministry. I always say the job of a pastor is to work ourselves out of a job. (laughs) because we've, we've brought up people around us to go help others. And I like what he says there, not just come to know Christ, but to become mature in Christ. Not just walking somebody to the baptistry, but walking with them after that too. So that they can become fully mature. Just like when we raise our kids, we don't just one day see them off and say, oh, see you later. And I'm 41, my dad still calls and gives me advice from time to time. Why? Because there's still a lot of things I need to know about the world. There's still a lot of things I need to know about fatherhood about being a husband. So a lot of things I just need to know, period. And probably will be that way until God calls me home someday. That's what we're called to do as a church. If you love him, feed his sheep, tend his flock, get involved with the church here. See, I think that loving Jesus and serving him through his church, it's interrelated. Uh, You've heard me say this before many times, church is not a spectator sport if I go to the Chiefs game tomorrow night or one of you guys go to the Chiefs game tomorrow night, very, very good chance they're not going to call us down on the field to play. I hope not. If they do, something really bad has happened. Okay? I got to go to several uh, sporting KC games this year. got to go to a few Royals games this year. Never once did they ask me to come down and play. I was starting to take it personal. No, they're not going to. Why? Because that's a spectator sport. I'm there to watch. That's not Church. Church is not a spectator sport. We don't want you to be spectators. We want you to be participants. Not because it makes my job easier, because it serves the kingdom of God that goes beyond just Crossroads Christian Church. It goes to the church globally. And you may be sitting there going, Well, that's great, but I'm not really qualified for ministry. I didn't go to Bible college. I can't spout Bible verses off the top of my head. Somebody might say something and I don't have an answer. Can I tell you a little secret here? I don't either most of the time. I don't have an answer most of the time. I can't spout a Bible verse off the top of my head most of the time. Brad Feynman can do that. It makes me sick. Because <laughs> it makes me look really bad by comparison. Okay? No, I, I will always say the secret I have, my, my, my secret I have when it comes to building a lesson, building a sermon, is that Google is my friend. Because sometimes I've just forgotten, okay, where exactly is this verse? It's okay. Don't think you've got to be qualified. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call. He's put it on your life. And here's the thing you need to understand. We're all not qualified for certain parts of ministry. There's a reason I'm not leading you in singing every week. Not exactly qualified for that. Okay? And I can hear you all... When I'm backstage here, many of you aren't qualified for that either, okay? (laughs) It's a joyous noise to God, not always to us. Keep singing. We love it. Don't get me wrong. But here's the thing. You're qualified for something. And most likely, you're qualified for something I'm not. You're qualified to serve in an an area of ministry that none of us on staff are. Maybe you've got a story that that led you to where you're at today that, that I don't have. You can reach people in a way I'll never be able to. Use that. Use that for the kingdom. Use that for the church. Because if you're willing and able, God can and will use you. But do it humbly. Do it with grace and mercy. Use your gifts that God has given you. If you love him, feed his sheep. He's already given you the commission. We read about the Great commission of Matthew 28: "Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit." Or Acts 1:8, "Go be my witnesses throughout all the world." I think my favorite one's found in John chapter 20. He says, "As the Father has sent me, I am sending you." I love that because three times he says why he was sent. He was sent to bring life and to bring it to the full. He was sent to serve others, and he was sent to seek and save the lost. Church, if we just do those three things, we're gonna make an impact. We're gonna show the world how much we love Jesus. We're gonna show the world exactly what he has done for them. You love him, feed his sheep, tend his flock, take care of those that he has entrusted to you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the love of Jesus, the love you have for us, the love that was there for us before we deserved it. God, I pray today that we would always remember that love and we would put it to action in what we do. God, we are so grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for that love that covers a multitude of sins, that's restorative and redemptive, that brings us back into fullness with you. God, I pray that we would always keep that in mind, that we would share that with others, that we would let that fuel and spill over into everything that we do. We are so grateful for your son. We pray in his name.
1: Amen. Amen. As we prepare for the uh, communion time, I was praying about this on Friday because I I wanted to share the... uh, Kind of the prep for this, and it's interesting how that works. And I had gotten an email from you know our friend Amy Savan, wanting us to do a song. And I thought, okay, I'll I'll listen to this song. And as I started listening, it's by Rhett Walker. I'm going, ooh, this this has some really cool words. And then as I printed it to look at the the lyrics, I'm like, this is this is a communion song. It really is. So let me read. See, he starts off with the verse. It says, I heard the preacher talking about three wooden crosses up on a hill for everyone to see. Two sinners on the outside couldn't save themselves if they tried. All I can think is, man, that sounds like me. Then the chorus comes in and says, I've been the one on the left, full of guilt and regret, long gone on the wrong side of living. I've been the one on the right, always looking for a fight, can never be forgiven. I'm standing here today, overwhelmed by grace. Because I know who paid my cost. Thank God for the man on the middle cross. And I'm thinking, wow, that's powerful. Well, then he gets to the bridge. And, you know, bridge always is one of those things that kind of connects the, the chorus and the verses. And then back to the chorus, he says, The cross is where he went, but that ain't where he stayed. He brought me back to life when he rose up out of that grave. Someday I'll stand before him, see Jesus face to face, I'll worship and adore him for a life forever changed. It's amazing how a song can speak to you in so many ways, tell you the truth about Jesus Christ and what he did. He went on a cross, he shed his blood for me to change a life forever changed. Take a life that's totally broken. That's what Christ did for us. That's why we celebrate in communion for the blood of Christ and the body of Christ to say, Lord, please, just cover me with the whole thing. I need you. I'm a broken person. I need the salvation through Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what these words mean. Father, not as a song, but as a communion, as, a, as, a, as we partake of this, that these speak to our hearts for the gift that your Son gave us. Thank you so much as we partake together. In Jesus' name, amen.